Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and this week I am turning the interview over to my co-host and director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, Michael Berkman, who is going to be talking with Donna Berry, Professor Emerita of Political Science here at Penn State and an expert on Russia and post-Soviet politics. I will let Michael and Donna talk more about Donna's expertise and how it applies to what we're seeing play out with Russia and Ukraine today. So take it away, Michael. Thank you, Jenna. And Donna, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. My pleasure, Michael. Ah, It's good to see you. Donna, you've been uh, studying and teaching about Russia. You studied there when it was still the Soviet Union. Isn't that right? Yes. Uh, How many times would you say you've visited Russia? You know, I lost count. I went pretty much every year from the late Gorbachev era up until, I think, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had a lot of field experience. Yeah. So I think it would be most valuable for us to focus on Russia and Putin rather than the specifics of what's going on in Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd start with uh, something that's been in the news quite a bit about this and to get your take on it. And so John Mersheimer, who is a a well-known IR scholar in the realist camp, has argued that this was pretty much set in motion years ago when the Cold War ended and the West allowed some of the old Soviet bloc countries into NATO. So as I interpret their analysis, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong, this isn't so much Putin's war as it is Russia's that it's an inevitable consequence of big power politics and their assessment of their national self-interest. So I guess my question to you to get started is, how inevitable do you think this war was? I don't think it was inevitable. For one thing, Russia in the 1990s was far more democratic than it is now. For one thing, the Russian government uh, did have objections to NATO in the 1990s, but uh, was not Uh, nearly was obviously not ready to go to war, to go to conflict over it. So to say that this was inevitable strikes me as just it's an overstatement. That's one. And the second is, even for countries that have not pushed to get into NATO, as in Moldova, the Russian government under Vladimir Putin has still put enormous pressure uh, on the Moldovans, especially when there's an administration that leans toward the EU. So NATO is obviously an issue for uh, President Putin and the Russian administration. But even without NATO, uh, the Russian government has been uh, pressuring uh, other countries in the post-Soviet world. So if not NATO, how, how do you look at it? Is it this idea that Putin talks about sometimes that, well, they're all Russians and so they should be with Russia, this kind of big Russia idea? Or how, how do you see that? I think for President Putin and for much of his administration, the the issue is sort of restoring Russia as a great power, basically. Russia has had trouble developing its economy. 
and uh, it's losing population. There have been more deaths than live births in Russia. Yeah, it's getting quite old, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Almost every year since uh, independence. And so for somebody whose mindset focuses on classical geopolitics, more land, more territory and more population really counts for a lot. So Ukraine at the start had 44 million people. Who knows how many people are going to be left? So uh, John Bolton the other day uh, made the argument that Donald Trump was going to pull the United States out of NATO in his second term. And then in Bolton's view, Bolton being the former national security advisor for Donald Trump, that Russia was waiting uh, for the second Trump term. When they didn't get the second Trump term, they decided the time to go in was now. Why do you think they went in now as opposed to, say, five years ago or three years ago? Well, until uh, recently, the the Russian government had been um, using a combination of peaceful and coercive means to uh, influence, to maintain influence in post-Soviet countries. Peaceful meaning um, involvement in elections, as in Ukraine. Peaceful meaning subsidies, uh, big subsidies on oil and gas and other products to post-Soviet, some post-Soviet countries, the friendly ones. Peaceful meaning support for political, pro-Russian political parties, support for Russian language uh, media and Russian language instruction. Coercive, we know, right? Uh, Military uh, war with Georgia in 2008, seizure of Ukraine. So, Those have happened and uh, the Russian government has managed to sort of keep uh, Georgia and Ukraine out of NATO, for example, and out of the EU with those limited uh, military activities. Problem, why now in Ukraine? Uh, Well, the peaceful mechanisms that the Russian government had been using uh, have been dismantled or are being dismantled in the Zelensky era in particular. So in the last year, especially the Ukrainian government closed down three Russian television stations, Russian language television stations, arrested uh, the head of the largest pro-Russian party and actually seized his assets, an oligarch, has gone after and has become more serious about addressing corruption. Uh, a new language law came into effect in Ukraine, uh, in fact, this year, uh, giving uh, preference, raising the status of the Ukrainian language over Russian. If you put all those together, it means the peaceful mechanisms that the Russian government had to influence high politics in Ukraine have been dismantled. So the alternative is coercion. Um, and there's one other part to this, too. There's been a water war between uh Uh, Russia and Ukraine over Crimea. After the uh, seizure of Crimea in 2014, the Ukrainian side dammed up the biggest source of fresh water to Crimea. And Crimea uh, has had a a drought. So no water. Uh, Bad for agriculture, bad for the tourist trade. Uh, The Russian government had been uh, shipping in bottled water, obviously not enough to help with agriculture. Uh, And if you look at uh, where Russian troops have uh, gone in uh, along the southern uh, border of Ukraine, they created a land bridge from uh, Russian territory to Crimea, and they just blew up that dam. So they now get water to Crimea. So when was the last time you were in Russia? 2018. 
2018. So three or four years ago, you were there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I'm curious, I, I thought it might be useful for our listeners to just know a bit more about what Russia is like and about what their governance is like and uh, what their politics is like. And, and so let me, let me start this way. When you were there, did you detect, and I think I know how you're going to answer this, but did, did you detect an active civil society, journalists, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, these all active and thriving when you were last there? Were they more active and thriving 10 years earlier when you were there? In 2018, there was a, there was, there were civil society groups, but then we have to make a distinction. Uh, there are groups that are allowed and supported by the government, the ones that, you know, help with child welfare or uh, other social, uh, social services, let's say, or youth groups, um, but very often they're sponsored by the government. So in that sense, active, yes, but not necessarily independent the way we think about independent civil society. Of the independent groups, they have been um, pretty much penned in and reduced over time. Uh, of the ones that were uh, critical, shall we say, or that didn't follow the particular line that the government wanted to follow. So the Russian government has, for example, over time, introduced increasingly stringent registration requirements for uh, uh, civil society groups that aren't government sponsored. Mm -hmm. Registration, re-registration, filling out more forms, giving lists of members and their addresses and contact information. So independent civil society, pretty limited. Um, maybe the most effective was Navalny, Alexei Navalny's uh, efforts to you know, organize uh, voters in elections. But we know what happened to Navalny. Right. So just to be clear for everyone, he ended up uh, in a hospital. Isn't that right? And then in prison? Am I understanding? He was understand poisoned, he yeah. was poisoned with, uh, with nuclear no. materials. Yeah. And so why did Putin crack down the way that he did? Was there a sense that there was too much political opposition to him developing. Is it is it something else going on? Uh, so Putin came to power at the end of the 1990s. He was uh, appointed right as a uh, an interim president by the outgoing Boris Yeltsin in 1999. Uh, and Putin has made clear pretty much since the earliest days in office that he thought the 90s were a disaster. He thought Gorbachev was a disaster. Gorbachev's efforts, experiments at democracy in the Soviet Union led to economic collapse and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And in, for Putin, that's a, obviously a negative. Boris Yeltsin's efforts uh, at democracy in the 1990s led to further economic collapse and almost to the breakup of Russia. Mm -hmm. So several provinces in Russia declared sovereignty, one declared independence, that was Chechnya, and Russia went to two wars uh, to recapture Chechnya. Right. So for Putin, um, Western liberal democracy uh, really does equate to disaster. And almost since the earliest uh, point of his entry into office, he set out to uh, reassert control over the media, over the legislature, over political parties, over business. And so what we've seen over time is uh, gradual, but nevertheless persistent tightening of restrictions and controls. And I'm curious about 
how you think of how absolute Putin's power is in the Soviet in in Russia. Are there uh, are there sources of power that counter and can check him? Are there institutional checks on his power? Not really. Mm-hmm. He's been extremely uh, adept, shall we say, at uh, neutering those, neutralizing those. Mm-hmm. So uh, elections are manipulated and Putin's party wins the majorities in the legislature. The courts are politicized and basically under the control of the executive. So the key counterweights such as they might be, would be the wealthiest businesses, the oligarchs, so to speak, and the security services. And the oligarchs have been uh, tamed, shall we say, ever since, again, the early days uh, of Putin's administration. So they depend on him. That leaves the security services, the police, the various police uh, uh, agencies, the military, and so on. And that would be his that's the most central constituency. But whether they can act as a counterforce, maybe only if this war goes so badly uh, and the sanctions bite so badly that being able to pay them uh, and support them and being able to claim victory turns out to be uh, turns out to be a problem. And and how far can this dissent that we're seeing in Russia go? I think many observers seem to be surprised by how large the protests are and right how brave the protesters are. And I mean, I guess I'm curious of a couple of things here, like how far can it go? Can it make a difference? And is this a generational kind of thing in Russia as well, that the protesters are from a younger generation and the older generation? Or am I imposing, you know, a framework that doesn't make sense there? No, I, I think it's a, these are good questions. And undoubtedly, um, the younger people are um, more disposed to turn out to protest. I guess the question is, well, two things. How far the government is willing to go to quell these uh, protests? Uh, and often in the past, the government has uh, arrested people, mistreated them somewhat, but then released them or given them suspended sentences. So to the extent that that happens, that's kind of a slap on the wrist. If the government steps up its detention uh, and mistreatment, um, then the protests, I think, would would diminish somewhat. The other part of this is uh, the ability of protesters to connect across across cities, across regions, into a, a mass national movement. And that, with that, uh, issue, the Russian government has actually been very successful or very lucky in preventing that kind of national organization of a protest movement, as we've seen in some of the other post-Soviet countries. So is that is that a strategy of shutting down social media as a tool of collective action? Is that mostly how they go about that? Yes, partly that. Uh, and partly, again, picking up people, releasing them uh, with some mistreatment to you know persuade them uh, not to be involved. The government's gone further in some cases uh, where parents have young children. The parents have been threatened with uh, the state taking their children if they continue to, to protest. So this is a government and sort of collective punishment figures into this, too, as in you won't get punished for uh, you only won't get punished for protesting. But your family members might also run into problems, too. Oh, really? That's that's an old Soviet strategy. Yeah. So. Soviets are masters at misinformation, disinformation. 
Yeah. And so what is the propaganda story that's being told to Russians by Russia? Uh, that uh, the uh, Ukrainian government has been victimizing uh, the Russian speakers, what few ethnic Russians there are still in Ukraine, victimizing ethnic uh, Russians and Ukrainians whose predominant language uh, is Russian, that the Ukrainian government is, uh, uh, the favorite term is fascist, Nazi, whatever. And so the, the Russian government is going into uh, denazify uh, and uh, take down uh, this, you know, obviously fascist government. Yeah, where does that come from? So is is Nazi simply just a really nasty slur if you're in Russia? I mean, which is understandable. Or is there something more to this accusation that the Ukrainians are Nazis? I, I, don't, I just don't really understand it other than a way of saying, here's a really bad word, because we all know we don't like Nazis here, that where does it come from? Well, remember that the Soviet Union uh, had the most casualties of mm-hmm. any country. And, and it was in Ukraine, wasn't it, where, where a large number of those casualties A lot, a lot, definitely. And so the Soviets um, replayed, uh, well, there were movies about the war and about the uh, Soviet heroism, and indeed there were heroes fighting against uh, the the Germans. Uh, but President Putin, that emphasis on showing you know war movies and talking about the war, that kind of went away in the 1990s uh, under Boris Yeltsin. But it's come back uh, in the Putin administration. So you know, World War II, revival of World War II, and the, both the victimization and also. Uh, the Soviet triumph really figures pretty prominently um, in the media and in the government's messaging. And so fascism and Nazi are still pretty salient, uh, or they're made salient um, mm-hmm. by the, the government-sponsored media. Uh, where does it come from from the other side? How relevant is it in Ukraine? Well, there are some sort of extreme right groups some of whom uh, organized and fought uh, against the secessionists uh, in the east, eastern provinces in Ukraine. But is Zelensky as Nazi? Right. <laughs> Fascist? So, nah. So when you think about Ukraine as a democracy, and, and I, I'm, I'm not outside your area of expertise here, right? You know a lot about Ukraine and Eastern Europe more, more broadly. How do you think of Ukraine as a democracy? Was it was it really moving well towards consolidating as a democracy? I, I, it's young. It had a lot of corruption. Um, how would you assess where it was? Somewhere in uh, somewhere in the middle of the road between uh, Soviet Union uh, and Soviet. Uh, politics, the Soviet political system, um, and what we might think of as a consolidated democracy, definitely not consolidated for a number of reasons, corruption being one of the biggest ones uh, Mm -hmm. and repeated episodes of corruption. But having said that, um, the governments in the last few years seem to have made more efforts to uh, provide more effective uh, public administration to address corruption. The government in the last two to three years has made more progress also in reducing the levers of influence that the Kremlin, uh, the Russian government had in uh, Ukrainian high politics. Uh, 
Uh, and so yeah, Ukraine has made halting progress, but I would you wouldn't call it consolidated democracy at this point. Yeah. So where did you what th- what did you think its main problems were going to be? I mean, now it's got real problems, but where did you think its problems were going to be in terms of moving closer and closer to being a Western style democracy? Well, uh, for one thing, um, it had uh, a uh, an economic elite, we typically call them oligarchs, um, who uh, had amassed uh, massive wealth and who played an outsized role in politics to the point of being able to uh, neutralize uh, political reforms that we would consider necessary for uh, consolidating democracy, particularly anti-corruption and the rule of law. And in many cases, the the oligarchs, uh, well, controlling uh, a big business or several big businesses, um, industrial factories, media, controlling whole regions, meant that oligarchs could also control who would get elected to the legislature and also could uh, weigh in on appointments into the executive branch and even the judicial branch. So containing the oligarchs, the power of the oligarchs uh, has turned out to be a, a big issue. And governments since 2014 have uh, made some progress on that. There have been a couple whose assets have been frozen uh, and uh, whose you know, political power has been, has been limited. Uh, so definitely rule of law, anti-corruption. And the other part is finding and neutralizing the Russian levers of influence. Mm. Influence within Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. And and so we've heard a lot about you know, Kiev as a cosmopolitan Western sort of city. Mm-hmm. And did the fact that Ukraine was moving closer and closer to the West, at least culturally, mm-hmm. and uh, was that part of the problem for Putin or? I, I know before you were saying, really, he just he wanted the land, he wanted the people. And it, do you include in that that, well, he also just didn't like having such a Western style government or a country that he saw as becoming ever more Western right on his border? Uh, yes. And in fact, so Ukraine's uh, economic ties, its trade has shifted from uh, e- or oriented to the East to more oriented to the West. So there's an economic component uh, for Putin to consider. And we can talk a little bit about that more in a minute. And uh, it's it's not just uh, culturally uh, more Western, it's definitely more uh, connected to the EU and more Western uh, style democracy. I mentioned earlier that uh, President Putin and uh, the administration uh, equate democracy with disaster. That applies to neighboring post-Soviet countries as well as to Russia. For example, President Putin was very active in supporting a pro-Russian presidential candidate in Ukraine in 2004. Candidate ultimately lost. That was Yanukovych. But uh, the point was that uh, Ukraine at that point had a pro-democracy uprising that uh, where people took to the streets against uh, the rigging of an election for Putin, that was a disaster. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and there have been other pro-democracy uh, uprisings. Putin, in many cases, has advised the leaders in those cases, the, the leaders who were more pro-Russian than 
more authoritarian, just to use force to put down protests. Um, so why be so concerned? Well, partly it's um, diffusion. You know, uh, a democratically oriented Ukraine is not welcome uh, for Russia with uh, its you know, uh, with a porous border and people who speak Russian who could go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, let's return to the economic question for a minute, too. Sure. So so Ukraine would like to, and they've been vocal about this or, or were about getting closer mm-hmm. to the EU, maybe joining right. the EU. Right. And is Putin offering an alternative? Yes. What, what is the alternative? I've heard this, but I can't remember the name of it. Eurasian Economic Union. Eurasian Economic Union. Yeah. Eurasian. Yeah. Okay. What is that? Um, It's an economic union. Uh, It has Putin has touted it as a a sort of parallel to the EU. It's an economic union that's supposed to integrate post-Soviet countries based on uh, shared uh, historical ties and shared culture. So the plan is that they will. uh, They're going to have. obviously, you know, tariff-free, barrier-free trade. Eventually, uh, so the argument goes, they should all be using the same currency and there should be a lot tighter economic integration. The problem with it uh, is twofold. One is uh, only four other countries have actually signed on as full members and they account for about 28 million people. Uh, So it's not a very big market. And for Russia, uh, well, Russia like the Soviet Union, has had difficulty uh, developing products that are competitive in global markets, trouble diversifying its economy away from exporting oil, gas, diamonds, you know, uh, wheat, agriculture. Uh, So the economic union, Eurasian economic union, offers basically a captive market. And Ukraine, with 44 million people, uh, would be a, a huge asset but Ukraine has never has not indicated any interest in joining. Right. And if if they did join the EU, of course, that would then put pressure on the Ukrainian government to ever more westernize, wouldn't it? Because you have to have certain kinds of policies to be within the EU. And, right. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, Thirty five chapters of, <laughs> of reg- regulations. Yeah. EU. Right. They, they are nothing if if not heavy on bureaucrats in, yep. the, in the EU, too. We've also heard uh that, that kind of the counter to the realist school of hyper-rationality is that Putin is irrational <laughs> and maybe somewhat insane or that COVID isolation has really gotten to him. And one of our colleagues had a column in the Washington Post today talking about how, yeah, not a whole lot of leaders really are crazy like that, but you never know. And what are your thoughts? Is Putin acting like Putin always did to you or are you seeing something different that would concern you and intelligence source and intelligence professionals? Well, I have colleagues who've advised President Putin on social policy, domestic social policy in Russia, Russian academics who have advised on various kinds of social issues. And their assessments again and again are that President Putin is very astute, quick, quick to get to the point. Their meetings are, are very well organized. Uh, they, you know, he asks, uh, well, uh, he's well prepared when he has the meetings. So that's the domestic side. On the foreign policy side, um, going back some years, there have been a lot of President Putin's speeches and his writings that are a lot more 
that focus a lot more on victimization, on uh, uh, mistreatment, on discrimination uh, that seem more emotional. So, you know, for the foreign policy side seems to bring out this this rhetoric. But um, rhetoric is one thing and rationality is something different. But it also seems like a bit of a miscalculation about the Ukrainians who were who have been known to be pretty good fighters in their time. Right. I mean, this is these are seasoned military people. So when you see some of them on TV, these people have been didn't they know this? Uh, well, think back to 2014, how easy it was to, they seized Crimea with yeah. uh-huh. virtually no violence uh, and, you know, started uh, the uh, secessionist movement insurgency war in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, the central government in, in Kiev was not in any position to really offer much substantial resistance. So based on that experience, it, it really does look like miscalculation. You're right. Did they did they underestimate Zelensky? Did they not realize who they were doing? Yes. yes. Yeah. Why, yeah. why do you think that is? Did they not take him seriously enough because of his background? Or I mean, what do you uh, here again? Um, this is this is okay. speculation, Fair but uh, yep. partly Zelensky um, early on uh, agreed, promised that he would negotiate and he did. He met with President Putin a couple of times. Um, They agreed on prisoner swaps, prisoner exchanges. And it may be that uh, the impression got created uh, in the Kremlin that uh, Zelensky could be could be either maneuvered or just lacked uh, sufficient support. Whatever the whatever the calculation, obviously, uh, Zelensky has turned out to be much, much tougher than they anticipated. So when you look forward, you know, look, look into the future a bit, not to next week, but just looking forward. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just, what do you, what do you see? I mean, it seems to me like Russia could be there for 15 years trying to get out of this Mm -hmm. situation now. Is that kind of your sense of what we're looking at or? Again, hard, hard to tell. Um, The previous experience with this level of force in Chechnya, for example, and in Syria is, ruthlessness, willing, willingness to really destroy uh, as much as possible in order just to, you know, raise the flag over, over rubble, essentially. In the Chechen case, at least, uh, you know, the Russian side flattened the capital city, Grozny, uh, but then provided funds to rebuild it. Uh, and so, you know, one possible uh, line of direction for this might be flattening much of Ukraine and then uh, rebuilding. But that requires uh, the massive amounts of revenue that the Russian government had been pulling in from its oil and gas sales and its natural resources. And that looks pretty chancy right now. Mm. If the Russian government manages uh, to defeat the, the Ukrainian government, well, there's another possibility, and that is that Russia takes most of uh, central and eastern and southern Ukraine and leaves the west so President Biden the other day uh, referred to the conflict in uh, Ukraine as battle between democracy and authoritarianism. Uh, Zelensky has made some of the same argument. Uh, do they see it that way within Russia? Yes, they do. I, th- I think it, I think they do. And it, again, to go back to the loss of the Soviet Union, the loss, near loss of territory of Russia, and to go back to the fact that pro-democracy 
protests and demonstrations, so-called color revolutions, pretty much upended, toppled uh, leaders who were friendlier to Russia in Ukraine in 2004, Ukraine in 2014. So democracy for uh, President Putin and the Russian administration is, first of all, chaos. And second, it's it's turned out to be uh, anti, anti-Russian. Add to that, um, when these protests have broken out, uh, President Putin's response uh, in several cases has been to encourage uh, the leaders, incumbent leaders, just to use force. So peaceful protest or no peaceful protest, it doesn't matter. Use force to put the to put these people down. That's not democracy. So you and I, uh, let me end this way. Uh, you and I both remember when the Soviet Union fell and people that were scholars of the Soviet Union had to reboot <laughs> in the post-Cold War era. Scholars coming up behind you studying Russia. Mm-hmm. Are they going to have to reboot too? I mean, is this going to lead to any kind of change and how people think about Russia, how they think about studying Russia, that type of thing? Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, you know, the uh, the sanctions uh, and counter sanctions mean that what limited access uh, Western uh, scholars had to uh, data, information, collaboration. Um, all that's diminishing pretty, pretty dramatically, pretty rapidly. Uh, and so just access um, to find out what's going on. Um, you know, people will be able to rely on, you know, maybe content analysis of official media, but that's pretty limited. Uh, and so it's going to be harder uh, for the upcoming generations to really get a handle on, on the internal politics and, and, uh, and society. So Donna, Thank you very much for joining mm-hmm. us today on Democracy Works. Mm-hmm. And congratulations. So you just retired after uh-huh. teaching at Penn State since 2003 mm-hmm. for my colleague during all that time, including a stint as department head. Before that, you were at many other prestigious universities around the country. Uh, thank you for all you did for the Department of Political Science and for Penn State. Thank you. Donna Berry is Professor Emerita of Political Science at Penn State and an expert on Soviet and post-Soviet politics and democratization. Today's interview was conducted by Michael Berkman, director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, and my co-host here on Democracy Works. For the entire team, I'm Jenna Spinelli. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.